He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord for guidance in our time in his word today. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have spoken, that you are there and you have not left it up to us to just sort of guess, to come up with our own ideas of what you might be like, but that you have revealed yourself through specific vocabulary to us in your word. And though this was revealed initially in Hebrew and Greek, and we can translate this into many, many other languages and have a clear understanding of who you are, of your love for us, of who we are as human beings created in your image and likeness, though it is profoundly marred and corrupted by sin, and that you provided a sufficient salvation for us in Christ that through his death on the cross we have salvation, an eternal life, a new life, a life that is beyond anything that we can truly imagine, that is ours not because of who we are, what we've done, but because of your love for us and because of the work of Christ on the cross for us. Father, as we've studied in these first three chapters of Ephesians, we are impressed with all that you have done for us, the wealth that we have in Christ. Help us to understand how this should so radically transform our thinking and our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 3. And Ephesians chapter 3, in some ways, this is sort of ending all of those lessons we did when we took a little diversion to study about the angelic revolt. We looked at Ephesians uh, 3, 8 through 11, specifically 9 and 10 last time, and this time we need to connect it to a couple of other statements that are made in both Ephesians as well as in Colossians chapter 2. And this gets us into an area of an understanding of why God created the human race and especially what God is doing through the church. The one thing I hope that you have been impressed with as we've gone through chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Ephesians is just how much God has done for us and the remarkable things that we have now in Christ. And these are not experiential things, things that we feel, things that we 
somehow uh, have some special uh, spiritual insight into. We only learn these things because we read about them in God's Word. And we'll be going back to this section, but in chapter 2, we studied this, that that in those first 10 verses, uh, Paul is reminding the Gentiles and as well the Jews that they were both fallen, they were both corrupted, they were both born spiritually dead. We have all been born dead, and we are dead in our trespasses and sin, a spiritual death as we studied that according to Ephesians 4.17, is alienation from the life of God. And so when that solution goes back to what Jesus said in John chapter 10, that he came not like a thief to destroy, but to give life and to give it abundantly. And that's the result we we learned in chapter 2 that Paul says in verse 5, uh, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and seated us together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus for the purpose that in the ages to come he might show, we'll be talking about that a little bit more, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. And so back then, he introduces this theme that part of the purpose of saving us and putting us in Christ, that this new entity, the church, the body of Christ, also called the bride of Christ, what high language is used there to identify who we are, changes our whole concept of who we are, our identity, our uh, self-image. We are distinct and unique of all believers in history because we are in the body of Christ. And that is for the purpose of showing something, as it's translated in Ephesians 2. But what we're looking at in our passage connects back to that. So I wanted to start by reading that. And just as we looked last time at these four verses in Ephesians 3, 7 through 10, that Paul says, of which, that is the uh, in verse, where are we, verse 7, of which, that is the gospel, the last word of the previous verse, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me. And we studied that whole phrase that that's referring to his apostolic commission and his apostolic mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. That was his primary role. That wasn't to the exclusion of Jews. Some dispensationalists in the early years of dispensationalism uh, drew too tight a distinction there, uh, but just as Peter took the gospel to the Gentiles, even though he's the apostle to the Jews, he took the gospel to the Gentiles under God's directive uh, command, specific command. So it's true that uh, in that that the apostle Paul was primarily directed to the Gentiles, but that was not to the exclusion of uh, of Jews. And so he goes on to say, to me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that is the grace of the responsibilities and the mission of being an apostle, 
that I should evangelize, literally, that I should give the gospel, proclaim the gospel among the Gentiles, and the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, we look at that phrase there, that that part of what is to be proclaimed with the gospel is the wealth that we have in Christ. And that's going to be made even more clear when we come to the last section of, uh, of chapter 3, starting in verse, verse 14, when Paul reaches the, the climax of his, uh, of his writing about the, all that we have in, in Christ. But as I read earlier in uh, Ephesians verse 6, uh, I mean, Ephesians 2 verse 7, in the ages to come he might show what? The exceeding wealth of his grace in kindness. And so here we are to preach, explain the gospel, the unsearchable riches. Earlier it's the exceeding riches, all the wealth, all the assets that God has given us spiritually in Christ. And to make all see, literally to enlighten, bring light to that that is the administration, bad translation of the New King James because of the textual issue. It's truly the, the administration of the mystery, this previously unrevealed truth, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent. This is what we looked at last time. We'll look at more t- this morning that now the manifold or the multifaceted wisdom of God might be made known by the church. Again, a collective term by all of us, the whole entity. We make known to the angels, the principalities and powers specifically. Uh, these, this is to the um, uh, fallen angels, but it includes all of the angelic hosts, things they learn uniquely with us. And so last time I talked about this, that in verse 8, proclaiming the good news to the Gentiles of the unsearchable wealth of Christ and to reveal what is the administration of the mystery. So it's two two areas of priority to evangelize the gospel, which in, it's a, it is more than just telling them how to get to heaven when they die. Because look at what he says. It includes the unsearchable wealth of Christ. So it is It is what I call the true biblical full gospel, not the Pentecostal full gospel, but the true biblical full gospel. It's not only what how, what we are to do in order to have eternal life, but how we are to learn about the abundant life that Jesus talked about when he said, I came to give life and to give it abundantly. So it includes the spiritual life and spiritual growth as well as how to have spiritual life. Those are the two elements. And to make all see or to be enlightened. Now, this is an interesting word here, photizo. So I've gone back through some additional study we have various words that are used here in relation to revelation. We have this word to enlighten, to bring light where there was darkness. Uh, and revelation, uh, that word is also used uh, for, further back uh, to make known 
is a word we'll be focused on here uh, as it has not been revealed by the Holy Spirit, that word for revelation. And so so there is uh, this this use of this terminology along with the word that is used in in, um, in verse 10 to, to make known to the uh, principalities and powers. Uh, but it goes beyond simple revelation, just the giving of information, which is what I want to focus on uh, th- this morning. And so it is a enlightenment about the administration of this mystery, this previously unrevealed truth that we are now one body in Christ, Jew and Gentile united equally in the church, in the body of Christ. Uh, This was hidden in eternity past and throughout all previous dispensations, and now it has been revealed. But that's how this word norizo, this word to make known, has been used before. But now it's it's put into the context of the purpose of it being made known. And it's, so it's used in a different sense. And I wanted to bring that out because one of the key principles in and interpretation of Scripture is how is a word used in the immediate context, how is a word used in a broader context within that particular epistle or book. And so you start narrow and you work your way out. But we've gone through many examples of this in the past. There are numerous passages where words, Paul will use the same word with three or four different senses in the same paragraph. And so that that first rule really doesn't apply. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 16, he talks about uh, spirit. He uses the word pneuma at least four different ways to refer to the Holy Spirit, to refer to thinking, to refer to attitudes, and to refer to the new life that a believer has in regeneration. And so you have to look at each usage independently as well as contextually. And so here we see his purpose stated in verse 10 to the intent that now, that is now in this church age, the multifaceted wisdom of God might be made known to the church. And here we have this word norizo. And as I pointed out previously, this goes back to, uh, is related in the context, you have the word enlightened back in verse 9. But if you look carefully at this, what we read in verse 8 is that Paul and we by extension proclaim the gospel and the wealth in Christ to the Gentiles, to make all see. There's a revelatory term there. Earlier, he uses this same word, uh, norizo, uh, that he, uh, that by revelation, God made known to him, uh, and in pre, then in verse five, in other ages was not made known. So that has to do with the concept of the disclosure of divine truth. That's the doctrine of revelation. That's on one side. So here it says, uh, so that says to make all see, to make them in, enlightened. And then in the um, uh, enlightened about the mystery, 
to the intent. So now you have the purpose clause that the multifaceted wisdom of God might be made known by the church. It's a different kind of making known, even though it's using the same word. It's not the making known in terms of God's revelation or disclosure or understanding or explanation of God's revelation. It is that the church, by its application of the word, is going to be making something known to the angelic host. Now, how do we make this known? What is the uh, particular uh, significance of that? And uh, as I pointed out earlier, earlier, when you have in context this word norizo, along with fotidzo, along with uh, words, uh, apocalypto, which is revelation. When you have these words grouping in a context, it, it calls for a little more investigation into how these terms are used, and it often takes you to some, some uh, uh, specific uses. So as I translated it last time, this verse should be understood as for the purpose that the multifaceted wisdom of God might be made known now to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. So uh, I wanted to look at this, and at the end of the last lesson, which was two weeks ago, I briefly went through principalities and powers. We're running out of time at the end, so I thought it might be wise to uh, use this again. Um, When we have this combination phrase, RK, for principalities, exousia meaning authorities, literally, translated often powers. It indicates the hierarchy of angels, whether they are the elect angels, the holy angels, or whether they are the fallen angels, the demons. For example, in Romans 8.38, Paul says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present nor things to come. Uh, that's the idea there that that it's, it's just the... And, angelic hierarchy, the different uh, strata of authorities within the angels. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, that at the end, that is that at the end of the millennial kingdom, when human history truly ends, Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. Three key words again indicating these different uh, spheres of authority within the the angels. Uh, Ephesians one twenty one mentions this all uh, far above all principality and power and might. We see those same words again, adding dominion and every name that is named. So this, these are critical terms to understand, and Paul uses it in relation not to holy angels, but to the fallen angels, specifically in Ephesians 6.12, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. Colossians 1.16 uses the phrase as well as Colossians 1.18 and Colossians 2.10 and then 2.15, pay attention to 2.15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. 
Now, I've mentioned this verse several times. We'll end up talking about this before we're done this morning because this brings things to a conclusion in terms of the angelic uh, angelic revolt. Let's skip past that. Here we go. So back to verse 10. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the church, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So what is going on here? First of all, this is part of God's plan, and God is using the church as a visible demonstration to teach some things to the angels, which in his wisdom could not have been learned any other way. Apparently, the angels couldn't learn this except by observation, observation of us seeing God's grace and God's love in action. They could only gain an appreciation for his multifaceted person by watching him in action in all manner of situations where he is facing the rebellion of his creatures. And so they watch us, they observe us. Paul talks about the fact that the apostles are displayed and they observe them. He says, we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. So we are being watched and observed by others. And he goes on and describes in the rest of that passage how They have suffered, and this suffering has been undeserved suffering. They have been beaten and tortured, and they have been imprisoned and abused verbally for their stand for the gospel. And yet, they continue to trust in the Lord. So we see that angels observe the apostles, and by extension us. Second, uh, angels observe church leaders, 1 Timothy 5.21 as Paul is reminding Peter of his mission, of Timothy's mission, he says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things. So it is, it is similar to an oath that this is your commission, Timothy, and this will be witnessed by uh, God and by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the elect angels, how you carry out your commission. Third, we saw that angels long to look into what God's grace is accomplishing in the church age, First Peter 1.12. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things, that is the content of the gospel presentation, the gospel, the content of the teaching of the word, these are things that angels desire, they long to look into. So there are things that are, that we have in our life and how we respond to the situations in life and how God responds in grace to our failings and also in his blessings upon us, they are all designed to teach these things uh, to the angels. So the church, uh, specifically in terms of the unity of Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ, is the object of this. 
this is not ever said of Old Testament saints. This is not said of those saints prior to the flood or after the flood, Gentile believers in the Old Testament or the Jewish believers. This kind of thing is never said. This elevates us to a whole new plane of purpose and meaning in life. So we have this thing that we are here that the manifold or multifaceted wisdom of God might be made known to the church, to the principalities and powers. So in light of the fact that I reached the end of that, I was beginning to think, okay, this isn't right. Something messed up, so something did mess up. So we're going to just go back to the word. I want you to turn back to that passage in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, this is very important. You look at this purpose statement again in verse 7. We have been made alive together. We have been raised up together and made to sit together in the heavenly places for a purpose. That in the ages to come, that is in the millennial kingdom and on into eternity, we will be on display in the sense that God's grace will be on display for all the angels and all of saved humans that are in heaven to go back and to observe, to learn. We were trophies of God's grace. And it says here that in the ages to come, he might show. Now, this word show in English uh, is a rather vague term. There are a lot of ways in which we can use the English word show. We can uh, expose it. We can just set it out for somebody to look at. It can be part of a tight logical argument, for example, where we show the truth of something, and what we mean is working through a tight logical demonstration You can show the guilt of a person through a series of tight legal arguments in a courtroom. And so that English word show is a broad word that uh, has uh, many different nuances to it. This word that is used here is a word that at times has this sort of general uh, meaning but in some contexts, it is more precise. It is the Greek word in deknumi, and it, it has a prefix. You can hear it in, en, that is the Greek preposition in, and that's a prefix, and the root word is uh, deknumi. Now, the root word means to show, to explain, to prove, to give a demonstration of something's uh, truth, uh, or, for example, demonstrating uh, an experiment in a science laboratory, uh, giving a logical proof. This is the meaning of the root word, and so the prefix simply intensifies the meaning of that word uh, in some sense. The exegetical dictionary of the New Testament says it means to prove or to demonstrate. And so the idea here is more than that he might show the wealth of his grace, 
but that in the ages to come he might demonstrate the exceeding riches of his grace or prove the exceeding riches of his of his grace now this word uh, indegnumi that form of the word is used some 11 times in the new testament uh, a couple of them are of great significance in Romans chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, we read, What if God, wanting to show, that is, wanting to uh, give evidence of or demonstrate his wrath, that is, his judicial uh, anger, it's not emotional, it is the application of his justice in terms of punishment. If God wanted to demonstrate or give evidence of his uh, judicial wrath and to make his power known, his omnipotence, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So what this is saying is that God knows that there are a lot of pagans in the world and there are a lot of heretics in the world and there are a lot of people in the world that are hostile to him and hostile to the truth and always will be hostile to the truth and will never accept the truth of the gospel. But he allows them to live for various purposes. And so uh, one of those purposes is emphasized in Romans 9.23 that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. So this is talking about a contrast. He allows these unbelievers who hate God, who hate the truth, who hate us to live so that we, by living in a context of persecution, a context of rejection, a context of abuse from those who have rejected God, will demonstrate in our lives the wealth of his glory. So this is more than just setting something out to be looked at in the sense of that sense of showing something, um, but it is the idea of demonstrating something. And you have these two different words and used uh, in Romans nine twenty two that have a very similar meaning. There, it's an overlapping meaning. In verse twenty two, if God wanting to show, that's in Deuteronomy. God wanting to demonstrate something related to his justice and his judicial wrath and his omnipotence for the purpose of making known. That's the other word that is used in our passage, noridzo, to make known. In the, as I just go back to make sure you didn't lose it, in the first part, making known is related to just revealing previously unrevealed information. But when you get down to verse 10, it is making a demonstration or a proof to the angels of his glory and his greatness. That's what Paul is referencing in Romans 9.23, that he might make known, that he might demonstrate the and, and prove in that sense the riches, the wealth of his glory on the vessels of, of mercy. So these are some of the ways in which noridzo is used, and it is specifically used several times in Ephesians. It's used in Ephesians 1.9, uh, 
and it's used in Ephesians 3.3 3 in this sense of revelation. In 1.9, uh, Paul says, having made known to us the mystery of his will. That has to do with revelation or the disclosure of this new mystery uh, doctrine in the church age. Same with Ephesians 3.3, 3, how that by revelation he made known. See, the word revelation helps us understand what he means by making known. Uh, Ephesians 3.5, in other ages, it was not made known to the sons of men. Again, it has that sense of revelation. And then in 3.10, it has a different sense because it's shifting to the purpose for that toward the angels, which is not uh, the revelation of new information, but the demonstration of God's grace as it is used in uh, Romans 9.23, the making known of the riches of his grace. And it's interesting to go through, go through the first three chapters here in Ephesians because what you see that God is demonstrating a number of different things. And we've seen it already in the phrase, the wealth, the exceeding wealth of his grace in 2.7. But if you go back to the first chapter and you look at verses like uh, like verse 6, it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So the glory of his grace has to do with, with the essence of his grace. We, we've studied that word uh, glory uh, so many times that the idea of glory has to do with, with the essence of something. That's what makes it glorious, is it, it, its essence, or that is what makes it important. So all of this is to the praise of the essence or the importance of his grace. In one eighteen, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the uh, hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance, so the wealth of the glory of his inheritance uh, in the saints, in us. And then in one nineteen, the exceeding greatness of his power. And then in verse 19, the working of his, uh, excuse me, the working of his mighty power in the second part of 19. And we see God, the mercy of God emphasized in 2.4 and his love emphasized in the second part of 2.4. God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And so all of this language goes back to what we are demonstrating to the angels, that they do not understand the wealth of his power, the wealth of his grace, the extent of his grace and power. And all of this goes back ultimately in the angelic revolt to something on demonstrating why God's punishment is so severe, that God is sending his creatures to an everlasting punishment in a, and burning in the everlasting flames of the lake of fire. And so what God is demonstrating is why this punishment is so severe. The punishment fits the crime. And so in the demonstration of God's grace, the crime 
of thinking that a creature can outdo his creator, that the creature somehow uh, can find meaning and purpose in life apart from his creator, and that when he does even the least little thing, such as eating a piece of fruit independently of God, that that creates such trauma and corruption and destruction throughout the universe and in every person's life that, yes, the punishment does fit the crime. And so that is what is being demonstrated uh, in these in these passages. Now, there's one other verse that I want to take us to, and that is in Colossians. So turn over a couple of books, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, to Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Now, this is a fascinating passage. We've studied it before. But if we look at this particular passage, just going back to verse 13, and if we read through verse 13, verse 14, verse 15, what we see is that's all one sentence. It's all one sentence in the Greek. And I think that's important because all of these things are going to be interrelated to the main idea. And the main idea, again, is the same as what we just studied over in Ephesians 2, 7. He made us alive together with him. That's in the middle of verse 13. And so the being made alive together with him is then explained with reference to different facets of how he did it and why he did it. And those are indicated by participles. Now, this is a difficult passage to deal with in the Greek because you have to figure out what each participle means. And when you study participles in first-year Greek, you, you are taught that there are about 11 or 12 different meanings to adverbial participles. An adverbial participle is one that modifies a verb. The main verb here is made alive. So, or may, Actually, it's made alive together. And the question is, how did he do that? How could he, how could a righteous, just God make us alive together with him? How could he do that? How can he do that when we are sinful creatures? Now, the reason I bring that out is we're, we're really headed towards verse 15, but verse 15 starts off having disarmed. So you, when you see those words that end in I-N-G, that tells you that it's just a generic way of translating a participle. So you have having forgiven at the end of verse 13, having wiped out at the beginning of verse uh, 14, you have, uh, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross in verse 14, having disarmed principalities and powers in verse 15. But Bible's more, you know, grammar can be more precise than just this sort of generic sort of participial action. And so we've worked our way through this in the past. And we read that the main idea there in verse 13 is that he has made us alive together. What's the relationship of having forgiven? 
and grammatically it 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 describes that action of making alive together but it precedes or it comes before that so what he did if you put it in a logical order first he forgave us all of our trespasses because our trespasses are forgiven because our sins are forgiven he can then make us alive together in Christ He's got to first satisfy the demands of his justice before he can regenerate us. And that's what happened at the cross. And that's what happens in verse 14. It starts off having wiped out the handwriting. That connects to the forgiveness. Because he had already forgiven us of all trespasses, And then that next participle is temporal. It is when he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, the indictment of our sin. Now, so he is able, he forgives us by wiping out, or when he wiped out, or by wiping out, it could be either one, the handwriting of requirements that was against us, and he took it out of the way when there's another. It's either when or by, but it indicates that all of these happen at the same time when he nailed it to the cross. Now the cross happened when the cross was two thousand years ago in thirty three A.D. So in in thirty three, the certificate of debt against us. Our sin is nailed to the cross, not when you trusted in Christ, but at the cross. It's nailed to the cross. And the the result of what happens at the cross is the basis for eradicating our sins. That's what forgiveness means. It means to cancel something out. It, It was used in financial, uh, in, in accounting, in financial context where it talks about eradicating a debt, just taking it off the books, it's paid for. That's what Jesus said at the, at the end. The next to last thing he said on the cross is it is finished. It is paid in full. So he pays the price in full at the cross, and because your sins and my sins and Hitler's sins and... Uh, Trump's sins and Biden's sins and everybody else's sins are all paid for at the cross. Sin is no longer the issue. It's not what you did wrong that's the issue. It's that you're spiritually dead and you have to receive the offer of spiritual life, which comes by belief in Christ. So, He's, he, Paul describes this, that he makes us alive together because he has already forgiven us of all trespasses. Well, when did that happen? By wiping them out or when he wiped them out uh, and they were taken out of the way and nailed to the cross. So that makes that pretty clear. But this, this sentence doesn't end there. In the New King James, it puts a period there, and often that's what happens in translations. They'll break up a long Greek sentence and put it into individual sentences. But this is all one thought. 
having nailed it to the cross, and then the next phrase, having disarmed principalities and powers. Now, this is fascinating to go through and try to interpret this. Having disarmed the principalities and powers. He is, uh, when did this happen? It happens at the same time. It happens at the cross. He disarms the um, the principalities and powers, the demons. They are disarmed at that same time. And this is a Greek word, again, a participle. It's apikduomai. And what that means, it's often used just to take off clothes. And so it's used sometimes in military context to remove armor. And what is unusual about the interpretation of this passage is you have, for example, in the early church, uh, this image of taking something off. Some of the early church fathers, in fact, the dominant view for probably the first couple of hundred years after the apostles were all dead so they couldn't correct them, is that Jesus is being attacked by the demons on the cross and he's stripping them off. That was the early, early church. You want to know more about the odd ideas people had? Once the Holy, once the Holy Spirit's no longer uh, giving revelation through the apostles and the last apostles off the scene and everybody's just got to rely upon uh, their uh, exegetical skills to understand the word, they don't get a lot of things right. So we'll, we learned about that in our study on uh, church history coming up on Monday night. Um, so that was one view. The other view is that, uh, that comes along with Augustine about 400, uh, AD is the idea he's stripping off his physical body. Again, that doesn't make much sense, but these are two, the two prominent views. And there's a couple of others that are also, uh, a, a bit strange in the way they are handling this. Uh, but the idea here, here is more along the lines that he is uh, uh, disarming or uh, in some sense despoiling the demons, taking something away from them that they have used to attack believers prior to this, but that it no longer has a significance. And I believe that the best way to understand this is contextually, which you might guess, is that this is all talking about the forgiveness that we have from God back in verse 13. He's forgiven us of all trespasses when he wiped out. See, that's just another way of talking about the forgiveness, the eradication of the debt. And he nailed it to the cross. And at the same time, it is that action of nailing sin to the cross and eradicating the certificate of debt that disarms the principalities and powers. Now, we have to be careful with this because Satan still goes around like a roaring lion, according to uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, that the demons are still active agents of Satan. They are described in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 as being able to disguise themselves. The angels of Satan disguise themselves like he does his ministers of righteousness, his angels of light. So they are still active. We also know from 
from uh, 1 John that Satan is, and from Revelation, he's the accuser of the brethren. So he still accuses us. So within all of those parameters, we have to understand what it means to disarm them. They are still active. They are still involved in energizing the thinking of the world, but they no longer have a basis of accusation. doesn't mean they can't accuse because they do, but they no longer have a basis for accusation because that, that sin has been eradicated. But we see, for example, in 1 John chapter 2 that, that Satan is still uh, bringing up our charges. He is still the one who is um, uh, pointing out our sin. First uh, John 2, 1, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So that even if Satan accuses us, we have our advocate, Jesus, who says, look, it's paid for. It was nailed to the cross, taken out of the way. That's over and done with. That is what disarmed them because there's no longer a basis for our accusation. So all of this connects back then to what is Paul is emphasizing in Ephesians, um, in Ephesians 3, 8, and 9, and that is that all of this was designed to teach, to manifest, to put on display in the courtroom of God his grace, demonstrating that it is greater than our sin, and that this has defeated the angels in terms of the fallen angels in terms of their accusation against us. It takes us back to the fact that all of human history is ultimately described in Scripture within the framework of this legal uh, courtroom uh, language. And this is usually not brought out uh, in a lot of the commentaries. There's uh, one that I know of, some others that get close to it, uh, that talk about the fact that this word that is used over in Ephesians 2, seven is a word that is used frequently to describe this, this courtroom uh, environment in which all of salvation history is described. You go back to the Old Testament from the very beginning. You have terminology related to uh, justification. You have language related to sin, language related to forgiveness. All these are terms that are used in a courtroom. You see the judicial nature all throughout the Mosaic law. And you get into the New Testament, these ideas are developed even further. And so all of our existence and all of the history of the human race is all described in legal courtroom language because we are in a huge courtroom. And we provide evidence in the church age for God in the demonstration of his grace and his goodness and the exceeding riches of his grace and the wealth of his grace and his great power. That is our purpose It is the church is to demonstrate this in ways that it was never demonstrated uh, before. 
And so this is where Paul brings us to. We have a little bit more to cover in this section, but to the to the purpose that now the multifaceted wisdom of God, something the angels could never see before this time, might be made known, might be put on display and demonstrated in a legal context to prove the grace of God through the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And that doesn't end the sentence. But now we can go on to the next sentence, uh, the last two verses where we'll get to next time, which basically it, it sort of brings us to an end of this this great statements that begin in 2.11 about the purpose for the church because as Paul ends this, what we'll see is he goes directly into prayer and praising God for all that he has provided for us. And he ends in verse 19 by saying, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So this, these exceeding riches, this, this wealth that he has given us is beyond anything that we can ask or think. We often hear the question, I often hear the question, what's heaven going to be like? God has said so very, very, very little about what heaven is going to be like. It is beyond anything we can ask or think. God could describe it to us and we would be dumbfounded and have no idea what he just said. We can't comprehend. There's nothing in our frame of reference to relate to it. And that's what where, where this drives Paul, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at this this way in which you have described our purpose in these, especially these two epistles, sister epistles, Ephesians and Colossians. Father, that help us to understand that so we're so mired in our self-absorbed reality how everything is about us and our problems and dealing with whatever is going to happen this afternoon or tomorrow or next week and uh, things that are going on in the world that uh, interrupt us and we don't get to do what we want to do. And, Father, we look at this and we realize there is a much greater plan and purpose and that our role within that is to manifest your grace, your love, to be examples of the trophies of your grace to the angels, and to mankind. And this is accomplished through suffering. This is accomplished through uh, the ways in which you bless us, the ways in which we handle adversity, and the way in which we approach your word and value your word. Father, we pray that we may be, uh, be true to our identity as children of light who are to shine in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. Father, we pray for those who may be listening who wonder, how in the world can I be saved? How can I have access to this wealth in Christ? It's a free gift. It is ours simply by trusting in Christ who died for us, believing in him. It doesn't have anything to do with feeling sorry for our sins or getting baptized or joining a church or being in the right place or saying the right words. It is simply realizing in the depths of our soul Christ died for us and we're trusting him and him alone. 
for our salvation. And now, Father, we thank you for this time and praise you for all of your grace in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.